0: Hi there. Come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee.
1: And I'm Steve Payne.
0: And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 555 for January 6th. 2024. Welcome back. Welcome back and happy new year. Um, yep. a great new year for Louisiana, we hope. Uh, tonight we have a guest um, I'm excited about, uh, Randy Gonzalez, who is written a book of poetry entitled Settling San Malo. San Malo was this Filipino a village just south of New Orleans. Um, Kind of a fishing village, and, uh, you know, they were out there in the marsh. I guess it's kind of near the Barataria area, and,
1: uh, yeah, uh, they. South and east of the city, I think. It's way, way out. Yeah, and,
0: and, uh, so, um, his, um, family is descended from, uh, those folks, and, a really early, uh, uh Asian influence on New Orleans that, you know, still comes down to today you know let's still have the community and um had an impact on the developing especially the developing seafood culture they they had real skills when it came came to catching uh the seafood and bringing it into town um and uh we talked a pretty good bit about drying shrimp (laughs) you know there was uh, you could dry out the shrimp and then they'd be a lot lighter and you could like send them around the world and they lasted a lot longer
1: so anyway. They did this, um, and, you know, I didn't get to join y'all for this one because my phone was not, there was something, there was a problem where there was no audio, but my mother saw this very thing down around Homa when she, when she, uh, my dad were a younger married couple, and they went down there where my aunt and uncle lived. He was working, in my mom's older brother was working in oil fields down there, and they were doing this around Homa and I think Point South, but they, they would put out these huge racks where the shrimp were drying.
0: Right.
1: And for like, you know, it'd be, and I don't know, I won't, I won't say acres and acres of it, but there was a lot of, you know, footage that was, square footage that was occupied by these racks where the shrimp were drying. It was pretty phenomenal. My mom couldn't believe it because she didn't know what she was seeing at first. My uncle said, oh, they're drying shrimp, you know.
0: Right, yeah. And you know, she'd never seen such. And I believe you had to peel them and probably originally by hand, you know. So a lot of work that goes in in in, uh, in that Um so we'll be looking forward to our chat with uh, Randy. But first, this week in Louisiana history. Yes,
1: yeah, so this week in Louisiana history, the famous day, January 8, 1815, the Battle of New Orleans takes place. And, of course, the night before, so some of the accounts say there was a sleet storm in New Orleans of all places. And so yeah. the the, the uh, British troops, uh, and particularly the gunnery crews, were trying to lug these huge cannons <laughs> through the marsh. And they got stalled in the marsh because, they, you know, it was hard to, you know, pull uh, in that in that sleet. Also, of course, they weren't expecting such cold. So they, here they were in, you know, below, below freezing temperatures, which is very cold for South Louisiana. Not as much right. for up here, down south it is. And, you know, fighting the sleet and the marsh. And, you know, when we had the 200th
0: anniversary in, the, you know, 1815, we took a little trip. Well, it was uh, 2015. And, um, we devoted the whole month of January to, uh, the Battle of New Orleans. It, it, it boggles the mind, Stephen. That was nine years ago. <laughs>
1: and by the way, not the lyrics and the melody, but the tune itself, or, or, or I should say, not the melody, but the, just the tune is an old tune that apparently has something to do with the battle. I'm not sure of all the exact details, but it's, it's got something to do with it. And, you know, lyrics were set to it many, many years later, but it's got something to do with Jackson and the victory in New Orleans. Cool. So
0: it's an old, it's an old, you know. We've had had, uh, shows along the way about this, but if you want to concentrate you know, just look through for that month, January uh, 2015. And like, like I say, all the episodes are about that. Well now, for uh, this week in New Orleans history, on January seventh, nineteen forty-four, the Liberty Ship Leon Godshaw was launched by the Delta Shipbuilding Company, and this is how we won the war, folks. Material, you know, they just couldn't sink all the boats that we could make, um, and um, yeah, um,
1: the industrial might of the United States. You know. Yeah, yeah, they woke a giant. Well, now for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, we celebrate the Feast of Epiphany, which is a Christian feast day commemorating the visit of the Magi, the baptism of Jesus, and the wedding at Cana. It's also the beginning of Carnival. Less than two weeks after Christmas, New Orleans begins the reveling anew with its celebration of Twelfth Night. January 6th marks the Feast of Epiphany when the three wise men visited the Christ child. In New Orleans, it also means the launch of carnival season, as we said. And New Orleans observes it with the Joan of Arc parade that marches through the uh, quarter. The Societe, the, the Chancelier, I guess, rolls down Rampart and St. Claude uh, streetcar line nearby. Meanwhile, uptown, the funny 40 fellows board the St. Charles streetcar for a parade of their own. This is also followed by the funky uptown crew. Uh, there is a website if you want to get more information about this, and you can go take in a, a really nice uh, celebration.
0: Yeah, and, um, mm. you know, this is the kickoff for our uh, carnival season. It's very short this year because uh, we have one of our earlier carnival dates. Uh, Got to get that partying in, get that, you know, uh, uh, go go get those king cakes while they're available because it is now king cake season
1: as of the 6th. And our uh, friend now, Ains, is probably out, you know, sampling every king cake he can find. <laughs> right. Now for this week's
0: Post-Con in Louisiana, uh, listen to Bubbles Brown play with his band, uh, band play at the Apple Barrel on Frenchman Street in New Orleans. When I get up above your yellow peaches Peaches E aí Your blues put you in the trance, higher plane of consciousness.
2: I for
0: that. Uh, speaking of, may I have another shot of tequila, please, Keith? Uh, yeah, you sure? Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, since you great, it's been good enough, man. Please, please. He's always busting chops. Alright, I'm not sure what's going on, but that.
1: Gracias, señor.
0: Cheers, everybody! If you have a drink, saloon Friday night. Reward yourself. We're just getting started with music here on Frenchman Street. We got more music. 10:30 to 2:30 in the morning. I believe it's Andre Lovett's going to be playing after me. But y'all reward yourself. Thank y'all for coming out and supporting live local music. Right, music? Give it up for Bubble
2: Proud. Oh. Pays all that shit
0: by nice. Because no one <laughs> Now on to interview with Randy Gonzalez. I'm Bruce McGee, Stephen will hopefully be joining us momentarily, and we're here today with Randy Gonzalez. Hey, Randy. How you doing today, Bruce? I'm very good. Thank you so much for joining us. And you um, have been doing research on San Malo, which is the early, uh, I believe it was Filipino uh, sailors, mostly, kind of, uh, when they got to New Orleans, they said, oh, I don't want to go anywhere else. They uh, jump ship and
2: stick around. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the Filipino sailors settled in St. Malo. Um, we we know as, as early as maybe the 1830s and 40s, there was a village there that probably settled a little earlier. Didn't necessarily have a village, but were out there fishing, right, in St. Bernard Parish.
0: And... I believe that San Milo, in your background uh, that we're looking at, like over your shoulder. um.
2: Yes, and um, I've been out to St. Milo quite a few times. It's a popular fishing spot, you know, for for fishermen that leave out through, um, you know, for the southern shore of Lake Bourne. Um, All along that coast, there's there's a good bit of fish still, and, you know, Filipinos were fishermen, um, but when you look go out there now you don't see anything right and, and um... right
0: right well and I wanted to show our uh, listeners uh, for the YouTube um, can you see my screen yes I do now all right good uh, now I just need a I had it pulled up a minute ago here it is so uh, the main thing information hour. Uh, website has on it is from Lefkady O'Hearn, who was a reporter in um, New Orleans for a number of years. And then, interestingly enough, after he wrote this on San Malo, he ended up moving to Japan for the rest of his life. And so here's a... Yeah, look
2: This is in the... the uh, Locard Hearn lived in New Orleans for quite a for a little while as a, and worked as a reporter, right? So he would have heard about some Filipinos you know, um, in St. Malo in New Orleans. Yeah,
0: let's get any more pictures. with we'll go back to our regular screen in a second.
2: So I guess uh, this is one of your sources for your own research. Yes, of course. That's the um, you know that's almost. Was what, what many would consider the original source right where that was the the most um visible you know source of of stories about Saint Malo where most people kind of first heard of it um you know yeah. most people saying most people out of out of the St Bernard New Orleans area right so you know in the 1883 when that article was published the world kind of um, discovered. I'm going to do air quotes around this "discovered" because that's kind of that idea, <laughs> you know. Uh, people from the city going out to the to the marshlands and they, you know, seeing something for the first time and feeling they discover it, right? You know, as
0: right, 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 right. <laughs>
2: the colonists have done well, for I, centuries.
0: <laughs> when I was uh, married to my first wife, her parents at the time, of, uh, at that time, her parents lived in. Um, Center in a, you know, one of those, you know, wasn't a yacht. It was just a, a, a fishing boat. And occasionally we would go to that area and try for, um, uh, mostly shrimp, but we'd caught a lot of crabs too. So yeah, it's a, still a fishing spot.
2: Yeah, it, I mean, as it's you know, it's an estuary, really, not a lake. So you have this movement of shrimp in and out. And then, you know, with the shrimp come the fish, um, who are you know eating the shrimp. And so you have a, a lot of kind of space for crabs to nestle near the shore and, and and to breed. And to you know, so it is a spot where there's just a lot of um, natural resources. You know, fish, shrimp, oysters, uh, crabs. Right.
0: And is this what they would have called the trembling prairie it was I kind of think of that being out in southwest Louisiana but I always thought of this too when I hear that term
2: yeah well I, I don't know that term in particular but I you know in the day they used to call all of this this part of of a uh, southern shore of Lake Thorn as the isle of Saint Malo right they thought it was all kind of an island this marshy land where um no one really fully inhabited it. was more a seasonal, you know, where right. you go and fish, um, create temporary settlements, um, and then go back when you know hurricane seasons. As I mean, they weren't known right. as hurricane seasons, but when the, they knew the weather was going to get bad, right? <laughs> and, um,
0: you know, the reason they would have called it that it's, uh. That's not solid land. We see back there; it's really marsh. And when you step on it, it, (laughs) you feel the. And it doesn't take much to destroy it. We have, we have uh, destroyed so much of that, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, place in Louisiana over the years.
2: But you know, it used to be more solid, right? I mean, this area was uh, disrupted by the Mister Go, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. And so, in you know, they'll talk about cypress trees, they'll talk about ridges. Um, along Bayou, yeah. Alicia, there, was, there was, you know, the, the, the oak trees would t- be big enough to go over the bayou and touch on, on each side, so there was enough solid ground for you know these oaks to survive and live along the shores. Of right. But you know, on the, the, the roots would kind of have held the land. Sorry.
0: Sorry. Yeah, The root sort of helped hold the land in place, uh, and uh, it, it all goes, when, when the vegetation goes, the land goes, uh, when the land goes, the vegetation goes, it's, it's a terrible, vicious cycle we're in now.
2: So, um, And the salt water, right, kills the trees.
0: Yeah. Before we get too much into cinema, i would learned to learn a little bit more about you. Are you from New Orleans originally?
2: Yes, I'm from New Orleans. Uh, I was born and raised in New Orleans. My family is, uh, you know, my father's side is, you know, Filipino ancestors. And my mother's side is, you know, Cajun and Islenos, Right. Uh, Canary Islanders who settled. Mm-hmm. So, kind of just like, you know, all New Orleans here. <laughs> you know, all Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. And
0: what neighborhood did you grow up in, and everybody else just wants to know your school
2: <laughs> well, when I was young uh we we lived on Congress Street, which is kind of in the in the ninth ward right by um you know the industrial canal there but uh, we moved out to New Orleans east um when I was about five or six, so most of my t- you know growing up was in well, uh, New Orleans East.
0: Yeah, when I was, I went to the New Orleans Baptist Seminary back in the 1980s, pretty much the whole decade. That was the decade that uh, it was after the fall of uh, South Vietnam, and a lot of the people living there hopped on a boat and got away any way they could, called them the boat people, and they wound up in New Orleans East, so you would have uh, grown up with a real vibrant uh asian community first generation um you know near where you were living
2: yeah i mean and uh, but i was a little closer in than you know the the village de les area but i you know of course knew of the area and we went out there for to play baseball and things like that but uh, i grew maybe closer to gentilly um right by the uh, industrial canal again so just on the, the just over the seabrook bridge so near to you, yeah, Vienna, yeah. In some ways I'd ride, I could ride my bike to college, you know, if I cross the mm-hmm. sea, very close to Lake Pontchartrain. So we, you know, I grew up kind of fishing and crabbing right there in Lake Pontchartrain as well. And then, of course, going out to, <laughs> Lake, to go short, go trawling and things like that. Yeah.
0: Um. So, um, so then where did you go to college or, or, after, or you know, postgraduate, like um, you know, for your, after your BA?
2: So, yeah, I went to UNO for my BA. Then I came to, uh, to U- UL, which used to be USL at the time, you know, for southwestern Louisiana for my, yeah. um, for my master's. And then I uh, basically, I, I, le- I went overseas for quite a bit and, and lived in Japan, Korea, uh, a little bit in the Philippines, the United Emir- Emirates for a good stretch, um, and then returned and got my PhD at the University of Southern Mississippi, which um, was right up the road from Slidell. So I, you know, I was able to uh, stay with my mom and commute to Southern Miss. You know, uh, right. So that was a good an opportunity for me to get my PhD. I had a family at the time, wife and two kids, so you know it was. Um, would have been difficult to uh, yeah, well, get a house and everything else and settle down with the kids and go to get a PhD at the same time,
0: right? And I uh, was we going back and forth to Hattiesburg.
2: Yes, from Slidell.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I have families up there, just a little further at Collins, and it's not a bad drive at all, especially with Slide jumping off spot. You miss all that. Getting out of New Orleans traffic. <laughs> and it uh, can just hop on the road probably not more than an hour,
2: uh, I would guess. Yeah, you're right. And it's um it's easy driving, right? Um just pine yeah. and hills, and you know, you can just kind of let your mind go and not have to worry mm-hmm. about that bumper to bumper traffic or trying to get across the Mississippi River Bridge or something like that.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> my, we have, we went to a wedding my sons and I, um, in Collins a few years ago. And I said, well, you know, boys, as long as we're that close, so why don't we swing down to New Orleans and spend a few days? And um, well, but, yeah, they were both single at the time. They're really on board with it. Nine o'clock at night we're stuck on the high-rise in some kind of accident. Uh, You know, we're just sitting up here. It's like being stuck on the top of a Ferris wheel, man. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, you just sit there for a bit. Eventually, they get it cleared away. But, yeah, you don't have as much of that once you get up to down.
2: No, no. And once you get up to, yeah, go up to to Hattiesburg, there's just – you know, not as many trucks on the highway. It, it's a very um, e- relatively easy drive.
0: Yeah. So, how did you get interested in um, the history of Asian immigrants and their descendants in uh, in Louisiana?
2: Well, I guess you know what happened is I got interested in my own family story, and I got interested in in particular. Uh-huh. In, you know, yeah why I didn't know about these stories you know it's so my family's uh you know grew I grew up knowing that we're a Filipino but not really knowing the kind of the ins and outs and the relationship my family had with the Filipino community my great-grandfather was a leader in the in the Filipino community in New Orleans he you know cool the community organizations he registered a Mardi Gras float for the Filipino community in the first First Elks uh, you know Arlenian's parade and so these things i didn't know anything about and um and i kind of mm-hmm. kind of understood that when i showed my grandmother uh, a book Filipinos in Louisiana um and and she right. was at the book and she started pointing to things going, Oh no that i'm on that Mardi Gras float there's my sister right there oh, that's in front of daddy's bar. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> what bar, right? What are we talking about here? And so she started, Yeah. You know, she looked at this book and she was like, oh yeah, this is my life. And I thought I was introducing her to a part of New Orleans she knew nothing about. And, and she was, you know, <laughs> basically knew everyone in the book, right? And, and so I was like, wait, why don't I know them? Like, why haven't you kind of shared this part of our, you know, community but, heritage, you know- right? I I have a my grandmother, uh
0: on my mom's side, we called her mother's spell, and uh boy, she had all of that genealogy in her memory, man. She wrote some of it down and one of her daughters, my Aunt Nelda, has written a lot more. Uh, you know, she just she's a family historian and um uh, I just never had the patience to sit around and listen when they were talking about it, you know, so it's on me that I don't know more. Right. Um,
2: Right, we don't have we didn't have a family historian, so I became a family historian, right? And, and, oh, and I forgot to
0: mention at the top of the the recording. Do you have a book that people might be able to pick up and learn more about it? Like the yeah. authors,
2: right? So I just published uh, the book's called "Settling Saint Malo." And it's a, it's a book of poetry, but it's documentary poetry in the sense that it, it really dives into yeah. the archives. It uses like Lafcadio Hearn and as a source and kind of- uh, Right, right. In many ways, I think it it um. makes the uh, these articles uh, more public facing and easier to understand within the context of Filipino, Louisiana. And right. it gives it a Filipino perspective, right? A lo- there's a lot of Oriental, yeah. a lot of uh, looking at Filipinos and not not right. appreciation of Filipino perspectives in a lot of these newspaper articles from the, you know, 19th century. So it, uh, it's really trying to flip that and say, look, you know, this is what they might have said about Filipinos, but this is what Filipinos were thinking about that situation, right? yeah you know uh Stephen and I are on the lookout for uh, modern spanish um
0: and even Vietnamese you know the recent groups in uh when they start writing about themselves it's just really fascinating and uh you you will definitely want to include those voices in, uh, in a project like ours
2: yeah the, I mean so this... would you go ahead Bruce Oh, sorry go ahead. So I include oral histories in the book, right? So there's just, you know, oral histories become poems. There's a diary that I found, and, and, you know, I I create, write a poem from that diary to give, you know, the experience of a young uh, Filipina who lived in New Orleans and went to my great-grandfather's bar, went to his wake, and kind of, you know, used that source to kind of give her perspective on life, you know, in New Orleans at, at the time. So really emphasizing the perspective of you know the community and give voice to the community yeah. right from that outside perspective because history tends to write from that dominant perspective from the city right from the city for right. educated, from the news um from for people who had the wealth to travel around at the time and so those perspectives are kind of slant uh, you know community histories and um
0: you know, in addition to the big papers like um, what's now the Times um they had all these um, smaller papers. A few years ago, we had a, a German scholar who had been researching the German language newspapers and the German language, the German community in New Orleans. And they had a pretty lively one at, in the 19th century.
2: Yeah yeah I mean there's a I mean New Orleans was so diverse right Lefcadio O'Harn mentions you know hearing 17 languages outside of his window at night right um and newspapers you know oh yeah German French all kinds of languages it it's a port city one of the biggest port cities in the United States at the time so people were coming and going and uh and so it it was imp- you know you would have a lot of voices and a lot of people settling in New Orleans and unfortunately, we I mean, kind of lose that today where we get this narrow perception of Louisiana as Cajun Creole and that's it, right?
0: Yeah, if you think about the Mississippi Valley, it literally extends from the Appalachians to the Rockies. And so everything that's leaving the country from that area tends to go down the river and out to New Orleans because that's you know, easier, <laughs> um, especially before, um, before the uh, railroads got built. So, would you like yeah. to read one of
2: your poems and then we can talk some more about it? Sure, I can do that. Um, let's see. I got one here about uh, the you know the introduction. We're looking at St. Malo. I, this is kind of the, the introduction to St. Malo in, in my book. And it's from a poem called oh, yeah. Manila and fished at St. Malo. And this is a long poem, but it It really is looking at what we looked at the Lafcadio Hearn, kind of some of the perspective giving in there when they entered Bayou St. Malo and what it was like. Um, St. Malo, 1883. Bayou, village, island with no, no clear western shore, patches of marsh, lagoons and canals unraveling into the gulf. From the lake, you see miles of flooded rushes, Laid out before a chenier, narrow ridge, sand and shell plowed up by storm surges, forested with live oaks. Until you clear a slash of wind-sculpted willows, do you notice stilted structures where men have claimed patches of marsh. From the lake, the landscape is all Louisiana. Wet prairie of swaying sawgrass, cane scratching into low clouds. Scatter of dew, darting teal, still frames of egrets, postured in shallows. Plain of water ripples as shrimp pop from the course of pursuing redfish. Past the mouth, the <clears> bayou <throat> turns Asiatic. Hat-shaped E strung with smoked fish. Cocks clamoring at dome cages. Squat men examining seines. Mile after mile more cypress buildings. All stained in moss, more fishermen tending to task without a nod to your passing. Wow,
0: that's great. You want to talk
2: about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, so that's that's basically my introduction to Saint Malo, and it's the introduction that I got by reading Lafcadio Hearn, right? And um and the kind of description of the bayou, and there are a few other articles around 1883 that describe the bayou. So I use these sources to kind of think, You're okay, right. we're entering this space for the first time, and like even as a reader. But as 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 was described in these texts, this is what was being described there, right? What was son- seen. Um, there are things do I do with text when I say things like Asiatic or Oriental? I put that in italics. Because I do want to say that this is an outward perspective looking at Filipinos, right? And if I use words like uh, poldu or chenier, which are Louisiana words or any Filipino words, I won't italicize them because that's the perspective of the people in the marsh, right? A poldu is is a coot or, you know, a French for what, water duck or water bird. And so... These words are very common, and most of I grew up not even knowing that I just thought pulledoo was an English word, right? I didn't even know it was a it was foreign influence word. It was basically only people in South Louisiana understood it. <laughs> so, this I try and emphasize like what is what with the italics and things yeah, like um, that, besides that perspective.
0: A lot of the words we think are um, French were actually adopted by the French from other languages, like I think Bayou is a Native American word, so it's not surprise, oh, I'm surprised, but when you think about it, it makes sense that, um, you know, these folks who are living out in that environment are the ones who came up with the words for
2: it. Right, right. and the language is just going to, they're going to create, the language is created and passed down, and, you know, the in the sense of a bird, like the scientific names are often not known, Right. (laughs) It's just the common.
0: Killazandia mm-hmm. mm. um, or something like that is uh, the proper Latin name for um, um, Spanish moss, but you know who knows that? <laughs> right. I just know because <laughs> we've been you know reading stuff about it. Um, so, what language did they speak when they got here? Because what um what in the the Philippines like a Spanish colony at that time or yes yeah part so of i it mean time?
2: spanish would have been the bridge language right where saint bernard was a mostly spanish speaking area as well so out in saint malo spanish would have been you know one of uh, the the languages that they used and they were also seamen so they'd been on ships for a while so they might have picked up you know a little bit english um but they're probably lots on spanish ships the home language, they could have been Spanish might be in the, their main language of communication, even amongst Filipinos, if they were from different regions of the Philippines. Right. So, you know, the the dominant language now is Tagalog. But um, there were from the Visayas, there are multiple lang- languages down, you know, in the Visayan area of the Philippines. So there are so many different islands and languages in the Philippines that sometimes, you know, Today, English becomes the the kind of bridge language, or Tagalog, the kind of more common um, Filipino language with kind of mixture of different, um, you know, native languages. So, so at the time, Spanish would have been, uh, you know, a good primary language for them to communicate with the with the the general public.
0: It is kind of ironic that the common language what became the common language was actually, you know, from the colonizers. Some of the Native American tribes in Louisiana, they still one of the last places you find the, the French being spoken. Um, but of course, they had to adopt that from the, from the French when they came in.
2: Yeah, I mean, you see this in India as well, right, where English becomes the common language across all the different, you know, languages, you know, and, to, and we almost forget about it today, right? <laughs> but in the in the past, when the when mm-hmm. there, you know, there there wasn't the communication across the islands and all of this space that we have today. Uh, right, it's more difficult to learn the other languages, right? there, there was just a lot of, you know, landscape, you yeah. know, kind of there was in between wow. <laughs> that, that didn't allow people to communicate easily.
0: And I guess. The things that drew that were attractive to the Filipino community were also attractive to the Vietnamese, and that is, they have a, a language connection, uh, French in one case, Spanish in the other. Uh, but also the uh, Catholic, also the climate, you know, and probably the the fishing is an industry. So there are there are a lot of reasons for um um uh, people. From Asia to feel at home in New Orleans, more so than probably anywhere else.
2: Yeah, I mean, in particularly, right, Southeast Asians who were colonized <laughs> it's, it's, uh, by, you know, so the Catholicism is a is a colonial, you know, output there, right? So Catholicism definitely is a reason, you know, uh, Vietnamese and Filipinos felt comfortable in Louisiana, um, but also, yeah, the languages. But it is that, like you said, the colonial part of it, right, Um, is important. And maybe why you don't see um, other Southeast Asian um, people represented as much as Vietnamese and Filipinos in Louisiana. And um, even after they got to New
0: Orleans, um, I know the Vietnamese community later was very cohesive, You know, they helped each other out, and they had a strong sense of um, who they were. Was was that also true with the Filipinos when they got here earlier?
2: Yeah, and it it was kind of true of all of the immigrant groups, right? There were just like these benevolent societies. You know, once people had a little bit of wealth, they created these benevolent societies. So there's the German, the Portuguese. You know, they they were and Filipinos created their own benevolent societies to help. Um, people coming in, and again, a lot of Filipinos coming in. This was all—all all in the—we're talking about the 19th century was seamen, right? They're all sailors. They're coming in the port. So if they decided to say there was stay, there was a function of uh, there was a, an organization that could help them and kind of point them in the right direction, help them get started. And also, these organizations served as kind—they of, had tombs, right, for burial. They had um, you right. Know, insurance in some ways when people were out of out of down on their luck, right? There were just ways to support them. And so these benevolent societies were the way that the Filipino community and then Filipino community organizations like these societies um help support the community and and help people stay together within the community. There weren't no. any kind of so the center is um, like, you know, like we think of Vietnamese living in New Orleans East, like in Village de Les. Filipinos had some of those at Manila Village in Barataria Bay, St. Malo, and in the Marini area of New Orleans. But there was a little more mobility around the city as well, where people were kind of spread out. Um, they weren't all living in, um, in one area. And probably mainly, part of that might have been that they often um, intermarried, right? It was Filipino seamen. Filipino men, and they marry, you know, local, or or you know, recent immigrants from other countries, you know, so Irish, Italian, mm-hmm. African American, you know, English. So this was kind of um, meant that they were also moving in, in different areas. They weren't always, you know, living in kind of you know the the ethnic enclave that we think about for or Chinese-Americans, or Vietnamese-Americans sometimes, or in California, the little manilas in California, you know, or things. Yeah. We didn't really have that in New Orleans.
0: There's an interesting subplot to Treme, the the series um, that was on HBO um, following Katrina, and one of these musicians that we've been seeing kind of on a spiral down because he's into too much drugs and alcohol. Um, and has a friend that takes him down to one of those boats, <laughs> puts him on it. Because once you're out on the boat, it's hard to get high and uh, drunk. So, uh, anyway, while he's down there, he meets this uh, uh, very attractive Vietnamese uh, young woman. And um, it's very much, you know, the, uh, the traditional patriarchy that's in. Because uh, what he has to do in order to date her is basically live on the boat with her dad all week. And, uh, and he keeps, and, and <laughs> they'll go on a date. Like, let's go listen to some music. And, you know, you, the camera will show them kind of standing there, you know, dancing a little bit. and listening to the music. And pan back a little bit. And, uh, right, on, right there is dad dancing with them. <laughs> yeah.
2: oh he wasn't letting her out of his sight man well i mean the families did work on those shrimp boats and that was part of it for filipinos as well you know once trawling in in manila village in which was in barataria bay there was a large dried shrimp industry right and filipinos this was a time of sane fishing so it was very um, labor intensive. So lots of, they needed lots of labor. So there were a lot of Filipinos, you know, amongst people from many nationalities or ethnic groups, right? Um, who yeah, were living yeah, in, I Tarot know it. And so once it on moved fire. to trawling, oh, go ahead. You know, once it moved to trawling, the oh, scene describing was very similar because the whole family would go out there. I mean, you'd have, young girls who, were, you know, might be 12 years old who were then picking the shrimp, you know, and, and sorting them and throwing out the, you know, the refuge. Mm-hmm. And so it was very common to have this kind of a uh, mixed, you know, the whole family out on the boat and they'd stay on the boat and the kids wouldn't go to school. It was just part of the life, right?
0: Yeah, my um, father-in-law had this I think he homemade it. It was uh, long, narrow trough made out of wood. He painted it with that stuff you paint over uh, shrimp pools. It had little sliding uh, uh, thing, uh, wooden things at the end, and it would dump all the catch into there. And it was called a pick box, and you just go through and pick mm-hmm. out the shrimp and uh, throw out the trash just you know over the, overboard again, um, and. Well, sometimes it was something you just, you know, it would be a live turtle. Nobody wants it, so you throw it back. Um, I'm sure they must have had some way like that to, uh, you know, after they've done the done the catching, then you have to sort.
2: Yeah, that's, that's exactly that, the picking box, is it, right? You sit there and you sort and you decide what you're keeping and what crabs or fish you're going to keep and which ones are going to go back overboard. Um, but it, it's a, you know, very common and for the young girls to do that, yeah. or the young boys, and everyone, whole family to support the, the trade.
0: And once you've caught them, this is before refrigeration, so you are really on the clock. If you want to take them fresh, you have to head on up them, and probably, I know there's still some um, places on the West Bank, or there's one place mainly where you uh, pull in there and Uh, They've got all the the really fresh, but uh, fresh uh, seafood. But the other thing you can do is preserve it, and I believe they would, um, if I remember correctly, uh, dry out the shrimp and then they would kind of walk on them to get the shells to come loose. And uh, and then you know, I, I remember getting shrimp in a bag dry, like just like a you know, um, size of a maybe potato chips or something. You know, a bag, and uh, and so that was a major way that they could preserve shrimp and get them to market, and it wouldn't spoil.
2: Right. I mean, that was you know. So I mean, the the dry shrimp industry, you know, was at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the turn 20th century, was really strong, mm-hmm. and it was really the first shrimp industry in, in Louisiana, right? Because the, the shrimp just don't preserve. Mm-hmm. That. Um, you can't you can't get them out of market you can't get them out of Louisiana they'll be fresh even you know mm-hmm. with ice it's, it was difficult in, in those times you know um you know so it, it was the, the dried shrimp were then laid out on you know large platforms you know football field size platforms and dried and they, they did you know once they were dry they would brine them first and they'd lay them out so that once they were dried they would step on them we, you know to remove the the shell and they would separate the flesh from the shell and the shell was the brand was used for fertilizer nowadays they even sell the brand in bags you could use that for seasoning <laughs> um and so then the shrimp were you know packaged up often they were they were sent originally it was sent to china right or to chinese stores in the united states so right they, right the original you know and then Louisiana, of course, somewhere here. Um, like for so for example, Bloom and Bergeron, which is based in Houma, they, they still they're still in the business. And oh, about a hundred years ago, you know, one of the, the owners decided to create a recipe book to, to to kind of encourage Louisiana folks to use more dried shrimp here so you know he could sell more locally. But primarily, you know, we we ate them as a snack, but we also used them in, in some dishes. And the primary yeah. dishes I hear people mention are gumbo and, and stewed okra for you know Louisiana dishes. Um but for Filipino dishes they can go in a whole bunch of vegetable type of dishes. So you know well, and, uh, for to, to have for, for Thanksgiving of, my, here, you know.
0: For Thanksgiving, my fiance wanted to make a uh, crawfish uh, dressing and of course this is not crawfish season, so um, what everybody does here now is you get them frozen, and then you just throw them in there, and they, you know. But you probably did that with the dry ones too. You just top, open up the bags, dump them in there, and um, they rehydrate some in the cooking process. Oh. yeah,
2: and, and that's how you would. The this, the flavors cool, there, right? From fresh shrimp, I mean. There's the stronger right. flavor. Um, So they do add a, you you know, when you've used dry shrimp or you, you know, you use um, regular, you know, fresh shrimp. I think what they they do is they create more of a stock, right? So they create the stock. So we often use the stock and not in place of the fresh shrimp. Um, They can supplement the fresh shrimp just by by basically doing the stock, adding the stock component.
0: And stock can be saved. There's a canning process you know put in a put in some uh uh, uh you know and, and then you have it ready when you need it where today i just uh, throw my stock after i've made it i make a couple of gallons and put in quart size containers and put it in the freezer but you know, they didn't have that option no and no. by the way i'm uh, looking I think you're referring to Katie O'Hearn's cookbook. We have that on our website as well. Anybody interested in a 140-year-old cookbook? Uh, He's got some of those basic New Orleans recipes.
2: There are no Mm -hmm. recipes in there with dried shrimp, though. I checked. (laughs) He has, you know, it it does show the range of ingredients that were used from heads, you know, in all parts of the fish and all parts of the animal. Right, that we don't use today, but um, they don't have dried shrimp in that book.
0: Right. So um, I get the feeling that some of those early cookbooks were rather elitist. Like surely people were eating crawfish, but there's not a single crawfish you know, recipe in this book. And yeah, uh, you think well, maybe it was just not you know like respectable enough to show up in the cookbook.
2: Yeah, and it shows maybe sometimes the bias of those cookbooks, right? They're city-centric. Right. They're they're not, you know, going out to the swamps and asking people what they're eating.
1: Right.
0: About 100 years from that. (laughs) So uh, would you like to read us another poem?
2: Oh, certainly. I could read one about dried shrimp since we're talking about that so much. Oh, please, (laughs) yes. Yeah. Uh, this, again, I have these really uh, long poems uh, that were multiple section poems, and so they deal right. with different parts of the dried shrimp industry. And so I can read the uh, Dancing the Shrimp, you know, poem. I mean, uh, yeah. Deals with that component of the process. Let's see. So there were a bunch of shrimp drying platforms, about 100. Manila Village was the largest. And then, uh, and and that's you know, it also had the name and kind of reflected back to the Philippines. So it's one that's uh, nearest and dearest to you know the Filipino story. But there are a number of others that also were um, were uh, were Filipino, and those were like Clark Chenier, Camp Dewey. Um, there was a place they called the Clubhouse, which was more landlocked, where people uh, would then who worked you know in the industry uh, would go. I'm sorry, I'm still kind of searching for that drying poem. Oh, here it is. And this is Dancing the Shrimp. Production began with a boil. Baskets of shrimp dipped into brick-lined vats of brine. Then spread across a hundred-yard cypress deck. Raised so the breeze rustled marsh grass. Whistled between boards. In three days of salt air, Louisiana sun, 105 pounds of shrimp curled to 15. Yet not done. Attendants raked cured crustaceans in preparation for the dance. Burlap-covered feet waltzed exoskeletons. Each turn more firm flesh as shells dust to brand. No missteps. Guitar or not, they marched, slid tired, jubilant feet across orange fields. That is great, and that's uh, just one of those like
0: noticing the details of a place. Um, like, um, oh, they have dried shrimp here, you know, and uh, and tracing the history of that. That there's a a history of dried shrimp in in New Orleans, and it's carried forward by these um, descendants of immigrants who had had a similar thing, I suppose, back in, in the Philippines uh, before they left.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was, Filipinos and Chinese were very, you know, integral to this, this, this industry. Um, a lot of Filipinos were fishermen and they were drying shrimp and, and drying fish and indigenous people dried fish and dried shrimp as well, right? Um, right, right but the process is very similar to the philippines and and also chinese and it's important because the chinese had the trade routes they knew how to make this an industry right so they exported them to china uh, you know so that was an important part of this this industry was the chinese you know yeah um, you know there was a way to get them out of the country basically and get them through um to China, to ports that, that needed them. So they sailed them in big barrels, you know, filled barrels and barrels of dried shrimp. And Louisiana dried shrimp, you know, they had dried shrimp in San Francisco as well, but there's something about the Louisiana dried shrimp. There was more carotene. You see the, how orange our dried shrimp are? And this made them Oh, uh, yeah. It made them more valued because of the flavor. So if you'll have Louisiana dried right. shrimp, and dried shrimp from, I mean, of course they had dried shrimp in, Vietnam and China, they could have gotten a lot closer, but they, they don't have the quality that they're looking for. So Louisiana dried shrimp,
0: right,
2: is considered more valuable because they tasted better, and then so they were more expensive.
0: Yeah, oh, I pay uh, right. more for uh, Louisiana crawfish at the uh, you know at the grocery store for the frozen ones than uh, um, and go ahead and buy the ones that are from here because yeah, well. I just want to lose the Louisiana. <laughs> uh, And in, uh, he said something in the poem I had never thought of before. And that is um, mm-hmm. most of the volume and probably most of the weight of the shrimp were water. And so when you dried it, it's not only much lighter, but much smaller. And you know, most of the expensive uh, shipping stuff is, you know, Size and weight, right? So if you can reduce that, then then it becomes easy to easier to uh, you know, uh, get across the you know to where they need to go.
2: That's right. So yeah, you you could fill barrels. I mean, just think of what a barrel of dried shrimp. You know, that's a lot of dried shrimp when you only need a handful for a dish. You know, right? And so uh, you know, like we sell them. You said we sell them in these small bags, right? And that you know. I buy a larger bag, but it's like oh, half a pound, maybe. And that's, you know, uh, you know. Uh, so it's, you know, they say, you know, when you go to the Asian market, it'll be like $25 a pound for dried shrimp. But, y- you know, you get like half a pound of <laughs> this huge bag, like a Ziploc, right. it's like more than you need. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, yeah.
0: Long way. I mean, <clears throat> if you're making like stuffed melatons and you're getting the dried shrimp for those only need two or three in a melaton, so it really doesn't have much matter too much how much they charge because it's going such a long way. It's not like you know the way we do with a shrimp ball or a crawfish ball is I want like five hundred pounds of boiled shrimp here. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> but if you're putting them in a dish, you can make them go
2: further. That's right, and then flavor they pack the flavor of. So when we say you know there are fifteen pounds comes from one hundred and five pounds of shrimp, it, well you know it probably has a hundred five pounds of flavor in those fifteen pounds of dried shrimp.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. It's uh, concentrated. Yes. So um, the one time we talked about this before, I think it was with uh, a few
2: years ago with Winston Ho. Do you happen to know him? Oh yeah, I. I... Winston is a, you know, I acknowledge Winston in the beginning of this book because Winston is, is a, so, some of his research and just some of the stuff he shares with me, you know, just, you know, you know, it has been a huge help to me. I just talked to him yesterday or through email and he's like, oh, did you know your great grandfather was buried in this tomb and he named the tomb? It's like, <laughs> I'm like, I did not know that. Thank you, Winston. Like, so he's like been able, a huge resource. Um, with all of the research that he does, and it really intertwines with, you know, the research that I do. And uh, we, we collaborate and share as much research as we can. And, and so it's, oh, you know, having people like that Louisiana to is, to collaborate with is just is just wonderful.
0: Louisiana is not that big a state. You know, we're closing in maybe on $5 million at this point. But once you get into the community that's interested in Louisiana studies, it's much smaller, and you're going to meet the same people over and over as you are. Uh, like, Ibrahim uh, uh, Seck over at uh, the uh, Whitney Plantation, and we'd interviewed him, and Stephen and I went to a thing over in Mackinac, uh, the other end of the state, right, very top of the state. Uh, this guy, you know, we had never met him. We'd just talked to him on the phone at that point. And this guy's talking, and said, Oh my God, <laughs> it's Ibrahim a sec, and uh, yeah, and so we actually so got to meeting. So
2: yeah, we, yeah, I,
0: we keep bumping into each other.
2: Well, that yeah, that's right. It's it's it is a smaller community, you know. I'm kind of on the edge of it in some ways because I I'm in the English department, you know. So I do go to Louisiana history. I do go to the folklore conference, but I'm not in. You know, I'm not primary in those areas. You know, I'm kind of a secondary figure but i i work with the community quite a bit and so i, I get to see you know well, I just meet people from all over in different areas and it's a uh, it's great. a lot
0: of yeah, a lot of the kind of research we do in english departments is history you know, uh, yeah <laughs> uh, we're, we're looking at it from a literary perspective but it's only but you know take your Shakespeare class, you're going to know a lot about Elizabethan England.
2: Right. And yeah, so when we're reading about this area, the book I'm working on now is the Foodways book on Filipinos, Louisiana. So it, it kind of... <laughs> cool. Again, you know, touches on the history, touches on Foodways, which can, you know, touches it with folklore and, you know, so we kind of cross well, these boundaries I, quite a bit.
0: I, I wanted to ask you a little more about San Malo. Uh, the, the impression I got from the uh, by the time was Katie O'Hearn got there is, like you said, there were it was more like a men's fishing camp type village than a place uh, you would live. Like there was one woman on the island; she was kind of the den mother, I think. And, um, but most of the families were back in New Orleans for more than. From what I remember it's been a while since I read that. Yeah the whole thing. that that's
2: kind of the impression you know that it's 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 a fishing camp but it's a it's not even it's a base camp right cuz they would fish all down the right. coast. And so they yeah. would go out and set up temporary settlements all along you know Lake Bourne and even across the, over into the gulf and so it was the kind of the the base camp where then luggers would meet them if they weren't sailing the fish to Shell Beach or Proctorville, you know then then luggers were meeting them out at st malo and and bringing them to mark bringing the the fish to market so st malo was kind of served as this base for them to go out into other fishing areas but also as a kind of uh, a market in some ways for wholesale market for other fishermen that were other you know traders that were coming to to pick up the fish
0: right right and then you wind up in one of these, like uh, fish markets. I'm sure the uh, the French market had one, um, but like I say, on the West Bank, they're you know they're the bunched just right together where where people bring their catch and then they sell it. And it, it like it, it had to be done really quickly if they didn't preserve it because seafood it just doesn't last very long.
2: Yeah, I mean, with so. That's what I think the, the St. Malo kind of boomed when when ice came available in New Orleans, right? Oh, yeah. Before there was Great. ice, they would have probably just traded locally in St. Bernard. Um, you couldn't even get fish, you know, to survive in a live well going from Lake Bourne to Bayou St. John, which means you travel through the, the, the salinity levels would change so drastically the time you got to Lake Pontchartrain and Bayou St. John. And got the fish to it's right. that that it wasn't it wasn't worth it so it was only with ice that um that really allowed that industry to boom and filipinos were, were like place very well they were living down there before ice so once ice came then it's like whoa this industry is growing right they were there to take advantage of of the industry the growth of the industry
0: <laughs> we did an episode on the history of ice <laughs> I <laughs> think we were getting to the frozen back there. But there are these yeah. two brothers having a picnic in Boston early in the 1800s. Uh, it was summer, but they had ice cream and stuff because up there they chipped they the ice out of the lakes and they pile right. it up in uh, insulated rooms and uh, they have ice around. And he said, What if we took this south? So they filled up a boat with ice and like 90% of it melted. But They made it to New Orleans with like 10%. Nobody wanted it because they didn't know why, why would I get that? So they did like your drug dealer. They gave free samples. Mm. (laughs) Uh, After people had tried the stuff with the ice, and they just went nuts. You know, there was a huge ice like industry in New Orleans. Uh, Early on, the only way to get ice was to bring it from where it was frozen naturally. They didn't have an artificial means for. Uh, for uh, creating ice locally for for some time, so it's funny how all this kind of ties into each other. Um, the way yeah. that we cook our food, of
2: course, changed. Right, and what we decided with, you know, we ate. I mean, things that preserved well, like oysters, were valued, right? Because you could just they they could survive. Like shrimp, perish so quickly, even today, right? You can't. Oh yeah, off ice for long. But something like, and they won't live in a live well for long. But, but oysters, yeah, you could, you could travel a good ways with oysters, right? And so they were valued. And, and then over fish. Well,
0: they had, uh, <laughs> like, oysters were so plentiful, they were really cheap. And you had all these uh, oyster bars, which I assume had alcohol, but you could also <laughs> buy oysters in them, you know? And, uh, and, and I still like to do that. <laughs> and they bring it yeah. out
2: on a bed of ice like oysters were served breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, in New Orleans. <laughs> they were just, wow. right. <laughs> the, you know, I think, it, I think it might be in the Lefkadi O'Hearn's book. It's like, uh, good for breakfast, you know, oysters, you know, good for lunch.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have to look that up, look up oysters and other seafood. Um, oh, 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 I think we've been going almost an hour. You want to read one more poem and then
2: well. Uh,
0: remind people where to buy your book.
2: Okay. Yeah, so th- th- there are three sections of the book, and one is St. Mala. where there are five sections. Sorry, one's St. Mala, one is um, Manila Village or Barataria Bay Area, and the other one's New Orleans or Nola, as I call it, as we refer to it in the book. And in, in the New Orleans section, there's a, there's a poem um, about... That borrows from the diary of, of a, a Filipina. And um, and that poem is one of my favorites. I won't read the whole thing because it's, it's really yeah. long. But it's based on a five year Go ahead, Bruce. What? It's based on a five year diary. So in the five year diary, you get five years, you know, it's a. You got about two lines per day, right? So they're really short <laughs> lines, and and she was right. expressing her basic feelings. So there's a lot of refrains of had a good time, had fun, you know, things like that. You know, wow. always boring, like very kind of basic. You know, um, not time for a whole lot of reflection or a whole lot of detail. But it kind of adds over five years. You kind of see this light, and particularly this life. Of um, when she was going to my great grandfather's bar, ah. and, so, and and what they were doing, and, and it was also during World War II, and so they would ship, they shipped out, uh, the you know like her husband, <laughs> out, and sailors are going, uh, Filipinos are seamen, so they're in the navy, they're going overseas, um, so we we kind of see all of that just through these little glimpses, um, some right. little of it. Um, You know, and I'll try and stop at a good point, I guess. (laughs) This is when we drank at the Filipino colony bar, 1942 to 45. Right. Spent the day in town. Went to a parade, then a dance. Had a good time. Hugo's ship came in. We went to the colony bar. Nick treated us plenty. Went to Charlie's place for Filipino music. Had a real good time. Toby got a ship out of Mobile. Mr. Johnny and an American fellow were about to fight. The boys from California left. Wasn't any crowd at all. Came home early. Went to Lafitte Cemetery, just like a summer day. Drank beer, got sunburned. Went to the Colony Bar. Had a good time. Went to Canal Street. Bought my wedding outfit. Got home late from the colony bar. Everybody a good time. Hugo and I went to the show. Saw this land is mine. Today Hugo and I got married. Everybody a good time. We all went to the colony. Billy and his his boys played. Everybody danced. Rained almost all day. Skipped the carnival ball. Took a walk to the colony bar. Wasn't any crowd at all, we left early. Dolores christened her baby today, had a good time at the colony. Hugo got a job on the Yarmouth. Worked all day, then to the colony, had a good time. Came home after 12. Louis treated us to the chop suey house. I ate fried chicken. Hugo and Angelo shipped out. I slept late, went to the colony again. Mr. Galera died today, didn't go to the colony bar, it rained all evening. Today went to the wake, then to the colony, it was crowded, had a good time, went to the wake again, walked so much my feet were sore, went to the funeral, (laughs) really sad, played cards all evening, closed the colony. So that's kind of the first part of that, you know, every day, a little bit of this, a little yeah. bit of that. And for me, the surprise was she goes to my great grandfather's bar, right? The Colony Bar. And um, oh, so this, right, this right. is in the historic New Orleans collection. And one of the reasons it survived is because, um, you know, she moved to California. <laughs> and so it, right. it was able to survive in California because so many things were lost in storms, like this is before Betsy, of course, before Katrina. Right. So many opportunities to lose something like this, right? Oh, yeah. I think that, you know,
0: part of the cultural conservatism and people's attachment to, uh, you know, the past is because in a place like New Orleans, you are always just on the razor's edge of losing it, you know. How many the the sea level of the Gulf of Mexico has risen half an inch a year for the last, I don't know, uh, I think going back to 2010, so we're up six and a half inches. How much more till it comes in, you know, uh, because sometimes it doesn't come up like that. It comes up like a big hurricane pushing that water ashore. And uh, we're ready for a category three thing, but you know what? They've got fours and fives. <laughs> so it, it's scary, and uh, you know, it's important to to preserve this stuff any way we can.
2: Yeah, and one reason you know, I wrote uh, poetry for this. Uh, I think I set out to write nonfiction, but it was like it was so fragmentary the history, right? That it felt like poetry was the way to go. Like this is it poems kind of yeah. Pretty- where these narratives, I don't have any other diaries. I don't have a whole lot of other stuff from that time period to talk about. But you know, to kind of focus on these, you know, focus on the details of these these events or certain people seemed more appropriate for for the story. The fragmentation of this story of Filipinos in Louisiana, right?
0: And the poem about the the diary. Um,
2: is there an actual diary that was kind of the model for this or? A, um... Yeah, and honestly, every word in the poem comes from the diary, right? It's just selected oh, and cool. you know, and and condensed and be trying to get it into a, a narrative and kind of a poet, you know, the the rhythm of the poem. But yeah, so you know, this is Celine Padilla's words. I just kind of selected and moved them and 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 did things like yeah. that. So it's her story, right? It's her story that I'm telling, you know, in her words, you know, just. In a way that makes it more accessible to a public audience, right? So no one, yeah, go no read the diary and and look through all of the stuff that's there. Some of it is like, yep, yeah, the same thing over and over, or like you know things that people aren't, right. doing, You know, don't fit this topic of Filipino and Louisiana so well. Don't fit this neighborhood. Um, but but these are the parts right. that were significant and a way to tell the story of the times, right? And way a way. It's yeah, made. and
0: this. This really reminds me of a project, uh, a book that was recently brought up by Sadama Sheikh. Uh, she had these, these, uh, these minutes from the economy hall written in French, uh, by her, uh, Creoles of Color, uh, uh, ancestors. And going back, I think, before the Civil War, uh, they, uh, they were cleaning out the building they had always met in and her father happened to wander by and Yeah, yeah, it was cleaned up. You might be interested in this. They're all in French, and it was those books, over a hundred years worth of uh, minutes, sitting on the garbage truck. They were on the garbage truck already, and her dad rescued it, took it home, and 30 years later, because you know she had to not only master French but handwritten French. It's kind of like what you're talking about. Published the whole run, it just kind of hit the you know the high points. Uh, but yeah, it, this thing was seconds and inches, you know, as far as the preservation of our culture.
2: Yeah, and it, it's a way to uh, you know kind of reclaim it and then give voice again to 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 Celine Padilla in this case, and uh, and f- and then make it accessible to an audience that would have never otherwise seen it, right, or heard the story. Right,
0: yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So, um, do you have a copy of the book, Candy? You could uh, hold up for uh, for us on the YouTube. Yeah. yeah
2: so this is it, settling Saint Malo. <laughs> it's from UL Press. Yeah. It came out. You know, this is I. I designed the cover here with the uh, the Philippines and my uh, great grandfather's military records underneath that, and then here's the Lafcadio Hearn article we've been talking about underneath the state of Louisiana. Now um, I guess we're mirrored, so it looks a little backwards to me. But and then this is one of the yeah. that, of the old the oldest house in Saint Malo that I've you know kind of superimposed or put underneath the the map of Louisiana, right? To, to kind of get this kind uh, to make sure clear up my own ignorance: is it Saint Malo or Saint Malo? Because uh, I've heard it both ways. Yeah, so you know, if you're French, you're Spanish. If you're, (laughs) it depends on American. How are you going to say it, right? (laughs) Right. And so it was named after uh, Juan Saint Malo or Jean Saint Malo. You know, again, French Spanish. Pick, take your pick of who's who's talking. And so yes, right. So yeah, it is San. You know, is if we're talking in Spanish or you know, it's Saint. But the Malo stays the same. Right, right, right. Well, and I'm so used to San Domingue, everybody talking about San Domingue,
0: uh, because I would have, before I started this project, I would have definitely said saints, because that's all I knew, you know, right? You know, ignorant. <laughs> Although, there's this there's a revolution in San Domingue, and what are they talking about? Oh, Haiti! <laughs> so, um, right, so that's how I got to wondering about, you know,
2: when, when and which is which. Right, so I've, like, when we talk, I talk about Juan St. Malo, who was, you know, the maroon uh, leader who had raided plantations and kind of built a community of maroons at at what is now St. Malo, Um, we call it, so on the bayou there, uh, you know, so I call call him Juan St. Malo. Now, of course, the French would have called him Jean St. Malo, right, or Saint Malo. Right, right, right. So, you know, it's... uh, it, you just gotta kind of pick one. <laughs> it's kind of the way I've gone about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this is New Orleans. We do not just pick one. There's uh, there's a whole podcast on how do you say melatonin, and uh, you know that's it's like a two minute podcast. It's on YouTube. It's real great because it gets a lot of like important New Orleans figures, and then okay, how do you say this word? And it,
2: they're all different. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's melaton to me, melatonin. <laughs> Grew up That's it. You can go on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been so great getting to know you, Randy. Thanks, Bruce, for having me. appreciate it. And best of luck if you're um,
0: given ratings in New Orleans. Let me know because I'm there about half the time. And usually it's the other half. <laughs> really something I want to go. Uh, there's something happening this weekend. And I'm not down there
2: to be there for it.
0: If I am yeah. there, I will. Uh, I'd love to come listen.
2: Well, I, and I also want to come up your way. I mean, you're a, you're in Ruston, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, we have a large Filipino community in the in the Arklatex, you know, corner there, Shreveport and such. And I, I need to come give a reading up there as well. Uh, just yeah,
0: um, Shreveport, and uh, some of those old towns. They have a you know very different like our. our People in Ruston mostly here for the university at this point,
2: but uh, right, right. Uh,
0: in other places they have a much longer history. We only go back to 1884 here, so um, we don't have that, you know, that depth. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and best of luck with your uh, with your with your poetry. I, uh, think it's excellent. And, I hope everybody gets it. Make they make excellent gifts, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do.
2: Yeah, get it, so you get it at UL Press, Amazon. Uh yeah, I know. Yeah. They they so we sold quite a bit, so they're starting to run out. So <laughs> don't wait to the last minute right. to buy your Christmas gifts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There'll be a run on them. Thank you so much, and you take care. All right. Thanks, Bruce. Take care. Have a good day.
0: All right. Bye. I want to thank Randy for coming on our podcast and uh, doing this um, this uh, this research. You know, um, you see, study of history. Um, most of the historians I've known, when you get to know them, there's there's a reason, like a personal connection between them and the part of history that they uh, that they investigate. And and um, I think you can get a real, you know. Insider's perspective in a way that it's hard for somebody who doesn't have any history with the culture personally uh, to get from just looking in from the outside. So uh, we appreciate his historical investigation, but also his uh, poetic uh, work in uh, representing his community and uh, their ancestors. Um,
1: well, especially, especially like you said, there's that community connection with a lot of people, and they, they, they want to study. You know, their Particular community, whatever that community yeah. might, but you know, could be, could be <clears throat> as an example. This is getting big now. That really is interesting to me because of my dad. But people are doing disability studies, and of course, my dad was a double amputee So this right. is this right. is getting a big deal, you know. And, and you even see it in, in literature, some where. It's, you know, that that kind of analysis is bleeding over into literary analysis as well. You and me uh, working, living most of our life. I think
0: you've lived all your life almost in a. Uh, Louisiana and me too, and um, and then wind up like studying Louisiana as a kind of way of, you know, understanding our culture to understand ourselves. So yeah, it's it's very valuable to have uh, people reporting out as well as people going in from the outside to take a look. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I am
1: Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Hain. We, we certainly want to thank Randy for, for joining us this week and uh, doing all of his research and writing poetry about the Filipino community in New Orleans. Again, it is the oldest uh, Filipino community in the United States. It's very, very historic with a lot of stories to tell, also a lot of uh, food. Uh, Randy has a, a really nice website that he uh, administers. I don't know if you got to, got to mention that in the course of the chat. But there is a really nice website. If you go and, and search him out, you can find it. Uh, if you type in uh, Randy Gonzalez and Filipino Community in Louisiana or something like that, it will come up on Google. But it is a really, really nice website, and he does solicit information from people that have stories to tell or have you know culture to share and so forth. So, so do go seek him out. But, again, thank you, Randy, for, for joining us this week. We also want to thank all of you for listening in. And we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.